1: I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome Mr. Ted Genoese. Mr. Genoves is an award-winning poet, journalist, and editor. I heard him speak at a webinar on meat and health through healthy food action. And he was speaking about a book that he just wrote called The Chain, Farm, Factory, and the Fate of Our Food. You know, we have been asking more questions as a society about where our food comes from, and the answers are often extremely disturbing. And there is a whole PR industry that sanitizes what we know about our food. So I needed to have Mr. Genoese on to tell us a little bit about the pork industry, and specifically, we're going to be looking at the story of Hormel Foods. And through that lens, we're going to look at immigration, the meatpacking industry, but mostly the greed and exploitation of people and pigs. So, welcome, Mr. Genoese.
0: Thanks very much for having me.
1: After I heard you present during the webinar on Healthy Food Action, I wanted to bring your voice to our audience. So, I have to ask you first and foremost why did you write this book?
0: Well, I've had a longstanding interest in the meatpacking industry, and it it comes quite simply from the fact that that my grandfather worked in the packing houses around the Union Stockyards in Omaha when he was a young man. He had been in school and was was forced to drop out and and took a job working first in the stockyards and eventually working inside a, a Swift packing house. So I heard some of those stories when I was growing up, And in particular, my father remembers very clearly going when he was a child, when my grandfather went back to visit some of his friends there. And he said that the thing that he could never have guessed and that that he could never get out of his mind was the sound of all of those hogs as they were being herded into the slaughterhouse and slaughtered. And he said that the screeching was just unlike any other sound he had ever heard.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so it sort of began... From there, I mean, it's something that I'd always had in my mind, and I guess I'd grown up with the idea that those conditions, the the sorts of things that my grandfather witnessed during the Depression, were ancient history, that regulation and government oversight had taken care of those problems. And it was only maybe a decade ago that I started to realize that that was not at all the case and that there were stories like his still to be told
1: hmm And interestingly, you do open the book with a quote from Upton Sinclair. Of course, he was the author of The Jungle, which was the first real expose, I think, of the meatpacking industry back in 1906. And the quote is, the speeding up seemed to be growing more savage all the time. And I think that in reading your book, and I want to just let our listeners know this is a riveting, compelling book about the meat industry. And it's difficult to read, but it's also very difficult to put down. I told my husband last night that it's very much like a mystery, a nonfiction mystery. It's extremely well written. Well, you mentioned something about your grandfather, and that was that he was a union worker. And My father, too, was a union worker in a factory, and my understanding was that the unions were protective of the labor force. You know, the labor had solidarity and that they could demand higher wages and health benefits, you know, the weekend, the 40-hour work week. But over the decades, the meat industry has systematically bashed the unions and gotten rid of that well-paid middle-class workforce and brought in an immigrant labor force. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how that transition unfolded.
0: Yeah, well, and that's part of the reason that I chose Hormel as the subject for this story. There's a very bright line in Hormel history. Everything is told in terms of strikes, and there's a period before the formation of the Union, pre-1933, there's the period after that That extends up to 1985 at the start of that strike. But when the union was so thoroughly defeated in the strike that occurred in the mid-80s, everything after has been totally different. And as you say, the unions for a, a very long time, for over half a century, were a force for the laborers to be able to collectively bargain with the employers And at Hormel, it's especially striking because as a family-owned business, which was founded by George A. Hormel in the 19th century and was founded essentially as a butchering operation where he himself was the hog butcher, it had a very worker-centric mentality. And J. Hormel, his son who took over the business during the Depression, was often ridiculed as being a communist and was sometimes referred to as the red capitalist because he was so concerned with worker benefits and worker rights. That changed incredibly dramatically when the company passed out of family hands and then became increasingly corporate, all of which led to the strike in 1985. But what I soon discovered was that the real catalyst for the strike was work conditions and was the speed of work that was instituted after a new plant was built And the workers were expected suddenly to do less skilled work, more repetitive work, and to do it much, much faster. And they all complained that they found the work to be much more dangerous than it had been before, and they expected that they would be able to go on strike for better conditions. Instead, what they found was that by the mid-'80s, Hormel had grown large enough as a company that they were able to simply shift production to other plants and to wait out the strike, and that the labor force was not unified enough to organize strikes at other plants in order to get what the labor force wanted at this particular plant. And once the union was broken at the flagship plant, then the other plants started to follow suit, instituting new equipment and faster lines there as well. And the speed-up has been the narrative of meatpacking ever since.
1: Hmm. And I thought it was interesting how when the original family, the Hormel family, after the son died and new ownership took over, then it was called Hormel. So I thought that was also very interesting. There was also a transition in how we pronounced even the company name. So the labor unions were essentially broken. And I remember in the chapters on the labor specifically, you describe how workers had been making over $10 an hour, suddenly were making six fifty an hour. And some of them lost their homes. They were living in tents. And I said to myself, how could the owner of a company watch this happen to his labor force? And even the speed, and we should let our listeners know too, that the chain refers to this, the speed of the line. So, how could the owner not only witness the loss of his employees' homes and their family lives deteriorating, and did he not also view through a window to see how the workers were struggling, eight-hour shifts, sometimes no bathroom and lunch breaks? Was there no feeling of remorse for causing so much suffering in a workforce?
0: Well, I think it's, it's an interesting thing, because many of these changes were undertaken by Richard Knowlton, whose father had worked in the plant and Knowlton himself as a young man had worked in the plant. And so he certainly must have known what the conditions were inside the Austin plant and must have known what it meant to beat up the line and and the pace of work so much. But Knowlton himself was really, he had the mentality of a systems engineer. And his whole thought process was how to increased production by increasingly mechanizing any processes that could be mechanized, and then turning skilled operations, skilled cuts, especially that workers had to make, into a series of simple cuts. And his whole thought process was just, we're going to make this more repetitive and more machine-like. And I think that mentality of making everything more systematic and making everything more industrialized overtook his perspective. That's my take on things, because his mentality seems quite clear, even from his own memoir, writing about these events as they unfolded. His whole thought process was that if the old workers leave, they will take with them their high wages and will be able to replace them with unskilled workers who require lower wages. And so if they go, that actually benefits
1: us. Mm -hmm. So he gets this immigrant workforce from Guatemala, Mexico. How does he bring this illegal workforce into the United States? How does that pass federal government regulations? And how is it that this workforce is punished but Hormel isn't?
0: Yeah, well, that's a complex set of questions, and it's, I mean, I think it's really kind of central to the, to where we are on immigration policy as a whole right now. The strike occurred almost exactly at the same time that the amnesty that was issued by Ronald Reagan occurred. Many undocumented workers who were in the country at the time then did not face the fear of deportation anymore. And what many of them started to do naturally was to want to bring family members north as well. At the Austin plant, there was this especially sort of strange circumstance that occurred where the company had, as a condition of ending the strike, had agreed to give preferential hiring treatment to any of the union workers who had been put out of work as a result of the strike and the strike breakers. Instead, what the company did was say, this half of our operation is no longer Hormel. It's now quality pork processors. It exists within the four walls of the Hormel plant, the new plant that was built. And at the time, there was one parking lot, one entrance. They eventually built a fence down the parking lot, built a separate entrance to try to increase their their coverage in terms of legal exposure. But the reality is, that what they were doing was creating a contractor within their own plant so that they wouldn't have to hire back the workers as they had promised. And the workforce that was available to them then right at this moment was a large number of recently naturalized citizens, but then also family members who were coming north. And the thing that Hormel seems to have recognized very early on was that this workforce was willing to work for less money, they didn't complain about work conditions, and they were very unlikely to get involved in union activities. And so they seemed the sort of corporate ideal workforce. They were people who would do the job and wouldn't cause any trouble for the company. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Mr. Ted Genoways. He is the author of *The Chain, Farm, Factory, and the Fate of Our Food*. It's an extensive, exhaustive expose of the meatpacking industry and the exploitation of people and pigs, all for the sake of cheap meat. Well, I have to ask you about now what's going to happen physiologically to people. We've got this low-wage workforce who's grateful to have a job. They are frightened. They're afraid of being caught as being undocumented. And they're working in a condition where the line keeps going faster. And you can remind me, if you would, how many hogs were being processed per hour and then the big jump that came. But along that chain is the removal of brain flesh from the hog skull. And apparently, you know, decades ago, that same meat was removed. But because it was done at a slower pace, there was less room for error and for these cells or substances within the brain to become airborne. So years ago, I actually met a reporter who covered this illness that had been seen among these workers who were working in this particular section of the the brain room, I think they called it. Is that right?
0: Yeah, this was so. This the location was called the head table. The head table um, within the what they call the warm room. There's a warm side and a refrigerated side to any packing plant, and it's a complex set of circumstances that came together to create this condition. But as you say, there was a particular station called the head table where workers removed all parts of the head for sale. They cut off the ears, clipped snouts, scraped the the palate meat from mouths, cut out the tongues. But among the things that they were also able to harvest was the brain tissue, which they were selling into the South Korean market for a thickener and stir fry. And so what they wanted was to be able to collect the brains quickly and ideally in a liquid form. But what they did was devise a simple setup where there was a pressurized hose with a brass nozzle with a little trigger at the end, which was inserted into the opening at the back of the the denuded hog skull. And it released a blast of pressurized air that liquefied the brains so that the worker could then pour the brains into a catch bucket and drop the skull down a chute where it could be ground up for bone meal. The problem, as you say, is that there was a sudden jump in the speed of the line a little over a decade ago when the USDA decided to experiment with a reduced inspection model to see what impact it would have on food safety. And what they essentially did was say, we will have fewer inspectors on the line and We'll instead have the companies hire their own quality assurance auditors, and we'll do double checks of their work. And what that will allow is for the line to run much faster. What you ended up with, then, is that between the time that the program was instituted and implemented in 2002 and five years later, in 2007, the speed of the production line went from about 900 hogs per hour to 1,350 hogs per hour. 50% 50% increase in just five years. Meanwhile, the number of workers hired to work in the plants only increased by about 10 to 15%. So obviously, everyone's working much harder, much faster, and it's hard to perform any of your tasks with the same amount of care that you would have before. What the workers who were running the brain machine told me is that they essentially were not able to carefully insert the nozzle into the opening at the back of the skull anymore. And what they were getting was splatter. And in the course of that, also, the air was blasting just hard enough that it was aerosolizing small amounts of the brain tissue. And it was forming a cloud of brain tissue that the workers were inhaling. And as horrifying as that is unto itself... The much worse thing is that the workers not only felt sickened by this as their bodies tried to fight off these foreign cells, but it actually also triggered an autoimmune response where the antibodies that they had built up didn't stop killing neural tissue when they were done with the foreign hog tissue that they had inhaled. So their antibodies then began attacking the sheaths on the the long nerves that ran to their extremities. So they started getting terrible, terrible searing pain in their hands and feet. And in some of the most extreme cases, they actually sustained both spinal and brain damage. And as I've, I've said in, in other contexts, I think it's important to note that I don't think that Hormel or QPP, the subcontractor, had any way of foreseeing this problem in its specifics. But when you increase the... seen circumstances that emerge from that. And that's almost the model of the line speed increase. The speed increases are generally done by five, ten hogs per hour where they speed up the line and they back it up again to see what's gone wrong. The systems engineers figure it out and they figure out a way to improve the machinery. What they weren't paying attention to and weren't taking into account is what effect it was having On the human workers who were there on the line.
1: Mm -hmm. I think what troubled me the most was in Chapter 5, titled, They Threw Me Away Like Trash, the workers describe that they're having these horrible symptoms. They're losing control of their bladders. They can no longer walk. They're in excruciating pain. And the company says, well, you don't have documentation, so perhaps some of your health care won't be covered. And I thought that was horrific, as well as the fact that I wondered where OSHA was. I wondered why there weren't any federal mechanisms coming in and saying, whoa, you've got to slow that line speed down.
0: Well, I think that's the central question. The Southern Poverty Law Center and a great unheralded group here in Nebraska where I'm based, the Nebraska Appleseed Center, have petitioned both OSHA and the USDA to set caps on line speed so that there is some accounting for the health of the workers. The way that beads have always been set up until now is a sort of de facto throttle on speed that's created by the necessities of inspection and saying, well, if an inspector can only look at so many carcasses per hour, then the line can't run faster than that. But now that there's been the opportunity for the companies to take more of a role in the inspection, and the USDA has taken a backseat in simply double-checking the inspection that's done by the companies themselves, they can hire more workers, they can design the plant so that it's not a simple linear plant, but is running multiple lines at a time, and they can dramatically increase the output. But The problem is that there's no formal mechanism then in place to be looking at the issues of injury. And a big part of the problem that exists here is that the statistics all indicate that the number of injuries among meatpacking workers have been on the decline. But what a fantastic study done by the University of Iowa uncovered was that if you look at the rate of injuries reported by workers in meatpacking plants along racial lines, that white workers report injuries at almost twice the rate that Hispanic workers do. And the finding of the study was exactly what you would expect, that people who fear that reporting their injuries, as in this case in Minnesota, and asking for workers' compensation will face the possibility of retribution where they are threatened with firing and even deportation for having reported the injury. So instead of facing those consequences, they have kept quiet. Mm -hmm.
1: And then they are not employable, and they seek services in the community, and rather than the community at large showing compassion for these mistreated workers, the reaction is more one of animosity. And I shouldn't say that's universal. It's clearly there are two groups of people. One are compassionate and the others are saying, wait a second, these immigrants had stolen their union jobs and they were leeching off government services. Why didn't anybody connect the dots and say, the fault is not with the worker, but the fault is with the company that is allowing this to take place?
0: Yeah, well... I think that, unfortunately, because there's been a long-time mentality of union labor and then anyone who's outside the union is a scab or a strikebreaker, that that mentality took hold in some of these towns where large numbers of Hispanic workers were brought in at once, especially in the early 90s. There was a huge influx starting with NAFTA when that undercut the rural economy in Mexico. And seeing all of these workers show up at once, I think, brought to mind in many of these communities the the times when the company had brought in strikebreakers all at once. And it was much the same kind of move. There's no question about it. The problem is that, as you say, instead of directing their anger at the company, who was exploiting these workers and in the same move trying to weaken the union, the anger got turned towards these new workers. And unfortunately, I think the easiest explanation for how that happens is racism and xenophobia, that a lot of these towns where the meatpacking plants sit now, they are outside of urban centers. They long ago moved away from cities so that they would be farther away from union activities and they would be closer to farm communities so that there would be lower trucking costs for the company, and so often these plants are sitting in rural areas that have traditionally had low minority populations, and the sudden influx of a minority group triggers this ugly response.
1: Mm -hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left, and certainly we didn't talk about the animal abuse where the hogs are being raised for this facility, for this processing facility, And we didn't talk about the housing situation and the water quality and the soil quality and how farmers are all interacting with this whole system. But I do want to give you a chance to give our listeners some idea of what we can do to create a more compassionate, nurturing food system.
0: Well, my focus has been on the meat industry. And I do think that there is some improvement that can be made by people making a choice to reduce the amount of meat that they eat, to improve the quality of the meat that they buy for themselves and their families, and to say whenever possible that you want to buy from a local producer and that you can have the animal butchered by a local butcher so that you know that the conditions are observable and that they meet your own ethical standards. Mm -hmm. The problem organic pork, welfare-approved pork, and reducing the amount of pork that you eat doesn't really of that low-quality meat. And what we need to do is press our leaders to change those incentives. And in some cases, these changes can be very, very simple. The line speed increases that I'm talking about in this book are all part of an experimental program that has not been fully approved by the USDA or Congress. They can improve conditions dramatically import processing plants simply by saying we're not going to extend this experimental program. So as much as anything, what we need to do is educate ourselves on the places where the industry can be pressured and then apply the pressure in the right places to make some meaningful change.
1: Mr. Genoese, I want to thank you so much for being my guest, for writing this book. I want to strongly recommend that our listeners read The Chain, Farm, Factory, and the Fate of Our Food. We've been speaking with Mr. Ted Genovese, an award-winning poet, journalist, and contributing editor at Mother Jones. He has won the National Press Club Award, the James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism, and he lives in Lincoln, Nebraska. And the website is www.tedgenovese.com, G E N O W A. Y S. We'll have that available on our website. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Mr. Genways, thank you again for this book and for your time.
0: Thanks again, so much for having me on.